From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Right now, at this moment, their grip on power is so firm the Republicans really don't have to appeal to anyone outside of Republican primary voters because the Republican who wins the primary easily wins like every general election. And so you just appeal to the far right voters in the primary. And until that changes, we're going to you know, get the types of leaders who we've elected recently. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Ross Benish. We're going to be talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, a topic that is especially timely as we're moving into a new administration with all of the events that have been happening in our nation over the past couple of weeks. Ross Benish, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me on the program, David. Well, I want to start our conversation in sort of an odd place. I want to start on an athletic field in rural Nebraska, and they're playing a game on this field, and normally they'd be playing baseball, but instead they're playing soccer. And that becomes a symbolic thing there in your book, Rural Rebellion. I'd like for you to explain to our listeners why it's significant that people in rural Nebraska would be playing soccer and what some of the politics around that are. Yeah, so to give you some context on that story, back when I was about 16, 17 years old, I played American Legion baseball and we'd go to this town called Skyler. It's about a half hour drive from where my parents lived. And they were a bigger town than us. So you you would expect them to be stronger in baseball but they weren't. And part of the reason they weren't was because most of their kids played soccer and we would um, refer to them as this soccer town. But what we really meant by that was that most of the residents of Schuyler were, were Mexican or, or from Latin America. And so we were you know, kind of mocking them. This is the soccer town. This is, this is the town full of Mexicans where everyone plays soccer and they, they don't play baseball. They're not like us. We're going to crush this team. And I, I don't think we necessarily meant to be that malicious. But looking back on it, there were times like that where we would say things such as soccer town or little Mexico or what have you. That was demeaning. And Skylar stood out because its demographics were different than towns like Brainerd. And the reason was because there's a beef packing plant on the edge of town that significantly expanded its operations while also cutting unions and reducing all of its benefits. So it got to the point where the only way that place would fill its labor is by going and recruiting laborers from other countries. And now Schuyler is a town where I, I don't know the exact percentages, but the vast majority aren't white. And rural Nebraska is over 90% white. So it really sticks out. And you notice it when you like play American Legion baseball there. And I want to make sure for listeners that maybe haven't looked at a map in a while. Nebraska, when you think about it, it's not situated anywhere near a U.S. border. 
is it? If we were to oh we were no, to we're, we're the we're the most landlocked state in the United States, probably. <laughs> well, and with that being the case, I was actually surprised when I was turning to this chapter in your book, Rural Rebellion, to realize that even in a landlocked state like Nebraska, you can still have immigration issues and real friction around immigrants coming to work in places like the meatpacking plant. And I, I, I will say that completely surprised me. I had no idea. And you grew up there. So was this a surprise to you too when you came back to where you grew up? Or was this something that you always knew that these frictions were always there? About being surprised, I just want to comment that I've had readers from Omaha tell me they're surprised to learn about some of these towns. So even within our own state, sometimes there isn't always awareness of what's going on you know, in the rural areas and how there's differences between towns. Now, as far as the friction, I was ignorant about some of the political issues that went behind these changes in migration patterns. And I saw Schuyler change, and there's other towns like South Sioux City and Madison. There's, there's a handful of towns throughout Nebraska that have had significant shifts in their demographics due to the, the towns getting foreign laborers, whether it's for meatpacking or a feedlot. And I didn't really realize how governors had campaigned on that, state lawmakers had campaigned on that, on combating the illegal immigrant menace. That was something that was oblivious to me because I didn't pay much attention to politics. I, I wanted to play baseball and do other things that high schoolers did. But when I went back and did the research for this, it really stood out. And it really got my attention over the last few years because the anti-immigrant rhetoric has been amplified. You know, People may have felt a certain way as these changes happened over the last 15, 20 years in Nebraska, but I didn't see as much ugly language coming out as I have in the past four years. And maybe I view it differently because I'm, I'm now in Brooklyn, New York. But I, I do think there has been a change in how the issues are discussed. But those changes happened well before Trump was in office that led to, I don't know what a word to give it, cultural resentment, fear of change. And so we're going to dig into all of these sorts of questions as our conversation continues. But as we're moving into that direction, maybe it would be good for us to take a moment and take a step back, because what we're talking about here in your book, Rural Rebellion, is the, the subtitle of it is How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Implied there in that is the fact that it was not always a Republican stronghold. And so maybe you can give us a thumbnail sketch of what the long history history of Nebraska was in terms of its politics? Yeah, so my book doesn't cover the whole state. I, I give some state history, but it's primarily the last 30 years because I'm a 31-year-old, so I'm seeing what I saw in my life. And when I was born, Nebraska had two Democratic senators, a Democratic governor, attorney general, auditor, a house rep, and the legislature was more moderate. And today, Republicans hold all those positions. And the Republicans we elect have continued to move further to the right than those who we elect even just 10 years ago. And that issue in Schuyler was one of the things that drove them to the right. In the 2006 Nebraska governor primary race, the lead candidate, who was a moderate Republican, came out in support of the Dreamers on uh, them receiving state aid for college tuition. And a far-right challenger was very much against them. And that was one of the issues that put them over the top. And we've just continued to move in that direction since politically. So, you know, where we are now, I think people are so accustomed to it, we forget how much we changed and how in the 90s we had 
Ben Nelson and Bob Carey and Chuck Hagel, people who stood up for expanding health care or Bob Carey's case, he was in favor of gay rights. Chuck Hagel challenged the Iraq war. Now we are the most ardent supporters of the Republican Party. And it's a change that's happened relatively recently in our state's history. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Ross Benish, and we're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And you've begun to touch on this, but this really becomes a kind of drumbeat throughout your book, Rural Rebellion. This notion that even though if we, like I'm in Chicago currently, you're living in New York City, if I were to take a straw poll of people here in Chicago or people there on the East Coast about what the characteristics of Nebraska would be, I think that it would be the kind of caricature that you've said that Nebraska has started to become in some ways in its politics, but hasn't been. One of the things that you report again and again in Rural Rebellion is just how complex and nuanced the political dividing lines in Nebraska, both in its cities, but also in its rural areas, has been for the past 30 years. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the complexity that a reader can find there. Since we've been talking about immigration, I'll give you an example right there. For many years, we were the leader in refugee settlements per capita in the United States. No state, you know, of when you look at population size, settled as many refugees as, as we did. And that was happening while we also embraced politicians who were very far right on immigration. Another complex thing is we expanded Medicaid. But when Ben Nelson was a U.S. senator and he gave Obamacare the final vote to push it through, it basically ended his career. So when you break it out by issue, I find that Nebraskans are actually quite caring decent people. We've raised the minimum wage. We've removed slavery from our state constitution recently. We've capped payday loan interest rates. They do care about the people at the bottom rung of the ladder, but they also strongly identify with the Republican Party that doesn't really hold those values. So you have some dissonance where if it's broken out on an issue and you ask a person that question or it's put through a ballot initiative, They'll be pretty sympathetic and they definitely do onto others as they would have done onto themselves. But when you go into the ballot, they're going to ride with Donald Trump all the way through the insurrection. Now, I want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly and that my listeners are hearing you correctly. So if we're talking about global issues, are you Republican or Democrat? The current state of Nebraska is, if I'm hearing you correctly, we're Republican all the way. And as you said, with Donald Trump through the insurrection. But what I'm hearing you saying is that if we begin to drill down into issues that we would expect to be Republican stronghold issues, and certainly there are the We'll get into the fact that there are some issues that are there lockstep with the Republicans on. But what I'm hearing you saying is that that we would also find if we went issue by issue or ballot initiative by ballot initiative, that it would be much more complex and that there'd be a lot more divergence from the kind of national Republican platform than we might expect. Now, those are my words, not yours. I want to no, make sure I that agree I- with that. I, I agree with that. When you place it in a dichotomy, it appears much more drastic. But on issue by issue... There's definitely hidden progressivism within a state that simultaneously is one of the most surefire wins for the Republican Party at this moment. Well, and you've begun to give us a couple of examples of that, but can you concretize that for me and my listeners? So if we were to go down, drill down into those issues, what would we find that might surprise us? 
for a state that's very Republican and Republicans tend to be very capitalistic, we are the only state in the United States where all of our utilities are publicly owned. That's a socialist thing to have public utilities, but we support that. And we have for almost 100 years right now. There's a lot of environmental activism. That's probably surprising to people because Republicans have fought against environmental uh, regulations and overhauls. But Nebraska and activists within that state are one of the key reasons why the Keystone Pipeline that pumped Canada that was going to pump oil from Canada all the way across the U.S. While they weren't able to to lay that route out, the activists were just relentless in, in, in blocking that, and there was many of them across political lines. Our legislature itself, we elect people on a nonpartisan basis, only state in the United States that does that. So because of that, you'll see electors who are registered to a certain party, but not officially belonging to it because it's a nonpartisan legislature working together to uh, try to pass progressive legislation. We were the last state in the union to give driver's license to dreamers. And that's because our governor was um, so against it. But the legislature finally overrode him. And that was largely due to moderate Republicans voting on a way that they wouldn't be allowed to if they had to have their party name attached to it. So there's all these little nuances. And I'm giving you the macro level nuances that happen within the state. If you talk to people on an individual basis, it's people like my brother who voted for Trump and is Republican. And you might assume this person really hates immigrants because Trump sure does. And he voted for him. But He's actually very supportive of immigrants and wants to support DACA and and disagrees with Trump on that specific position. And if that specific position was put to him in an isolated way, he he would actually go the progressive route. And yet he still goes with Donald Trump because he supports other things that are personally more important to my brother. Now, this is one of the real values that I think listeners will get out of picking up your book, Rural Rebellion, and that is we oftentimes hear that states are the laboratories of democracy. And I don't think oftentimes, and you point this out in your book, that oftentimes we we realize just how diverse not only the people in the states, but the structures of the states themselves are. And I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us a little bit about the legislature and some of these other particular issues. When we come back from our break, we're going to dig in and get to more of these issues. But for right now, I just want to remind people that they're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Ross Benish. We're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, and we'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're talking to Ross Benish. We're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. One of the things that you do early on in your book, Rural Rebellion, is you begin to talk to readers about your own background. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover, not that you are Catholic, but just what kind of Catholic uh, community there is in Nebraska. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you grew up, and how that affected your thinking when you were a teenager and moving into your college years. Yeah, so I'm from Brainerd, Nebraska. It's about 300 people, about an hour from Lincoln and Omaha, which are the state's two largest city. And I lived in the same household for 19 years. It was three blocks south of the public school there. And the Catholic Church was a huge part of my life and a huge part of my family's life. And just to give you some sense, when you're in a town like Brainerd, there's not a lot of businesses or organizations because of the the low population density. So the church is really one of the few places where you regularly get together with people outside of school. And it was really in the church where you you form a lot of ideas about what society is. So you clearly take political influence from it. And I I think our church was great. They had a lot of great events. It, It did so much for so many people. I think it does teach them to be selfless. But It also, especially in the 90s and under some of the bishops who John Paul II promoted, it has gone in a very conservative direction in a way where it almost just follows the Republican Party's line, even when the GOP violates things that go against Catholic social teaching. So I heard a lot about abortion over and over again. It's clearly an important issue. but. I heard more about that than I did about wars and poverty and injustice and lack of health care, all these things, pollution, all, all these things that are happening in the world. You hear about them a little bit, but boy, would they come back to abortion. And in some cases, gay marriage, but usually abortion. And that really influenced my viewpoint and those around me. And when you leave church, you, you talk about it with people and, and things that get said are passed around, whether you're at the football game or you're at the bar. And, and there becomes this, I would call it a self-reinforcing cycle. A lot of people will say how Fox News or conservative talk radio has driven some of these areas far right. And that may be the case, but I think there's a more personal feedback loop. And that starts with the church and what gets said there and where ideas generate and just you know continue to perpetuate themselves. Well, and that's something that I want to underline for listeners. When we're talking about your book, Rural Rebellion, we're talking about, as you said, a, a time frame of the last 30 years. And if we were to map the kind of ramping up of what we would call the culture wars, they, they began in the 80s, but they were really hitting their stride in the 90s, and they were at a fever pitch in the 2000s and beyond. And so what we're looking at is the church if I'm hearing you correctly, actively participating in these kind of culture war moments. Totally. And that really is what the Republican Party picked up as its flagship. Like the Republican Party is the party of kind of culture war values. Now, when I characterize it that way, it sounds like you're in agreement, but I want to hear more about that. 
Well, and, and to give you some context about where I was going to church, I, the Catholic Church is a very universal church. I can go to mass in Italy and it'll have the same structure as the mass in Brainerd. But we were in perhaps the most conservative diocese in the United States. The bishop who confirmed me, Fabian Bruskowitz, he tried to ban yoga. He excommunicated people who joined groups like Call to Action that he didn't approve of. We were like the only diocese in the United States that didn't have female altar servers. There were many little things like that were just extremely culturally conservative. Even compared to the the 70s or 80s, this was pretty extreme in how conservative it was. But you don't really realize that you're in extreme area when you're in Brainerd and you haven't gone anywhere else. I didn't get it on an airplane until I was a junior in high school to go to Washington, D.C. for a school trip. These are working class families who aren't traveling the world. What you see in here in Brainerd is just kind of what you think the rest of the world is. So you've just touched on something that I think if a listener is to have a caricature of Nebraska, you just put your finger on one piece of it, and that is Nebraska is benighted, depressed economically. It doesn't have a lot of cultural connection to the world. And you really push against these kinds of characterizations, these kind of caricatures. And so help me and help my listeners to get at what's true and what's false. Because you just said that you didn't get on an airplane until you were a junior in high school. And yet also in your book, you're saying, but the idea that you have of Nebraskans in your head is probably inaccurate. So help me to tease out where we should be going for our model or our picture of what a typical Nebraskan experience is like. Yeah, and I don't want to speak for all Nebraskans either. And those in Omaha and Lincoln are going to have a, a hell of a lot different experience than, than someone who's from Brainerd. What I would say is people, the way they value morality, what they define it in, it's usually respect for tradition and authority, whether that's the American Legion or the church or the nuclear family. I, I would say it's kind of true that openness to change isn't great in those areas. But what I say that's a caricature is that they're not callous or anything like that. Some of these things that are described to all conservatives these days, if you live in Brooklyn and you you don't actually meet many cultural conservatives, you, you may have an idea that they, you know, don't really care about other people or that they treat people badly or that they're only looking out for themselves. And I don't find any of those things to be true about Nebraska at all. They may be perceived to be true by people who have political opinions that are far left of those from Nebraska, but in the way they treat people, I think it's amazing. But I think when they go to the ballot box, they will also support Republicans overwhelmingly at all costs, no matter what those Republicans do. And I I sound a little pessimistic, and, and that's with what's going on in the country right now. And I've also been stuck in my apartment for a full year. Let me turn the question around a little bit, because we've talked about the perception of those in big cities and those maybe on the east and west coast about what the experience of Nebraska is. But let me turn that around and ask, growing up in Nebraska, did you have an image of what a person in a big city like Chicago or New York was like, or someone who's an East Coast liberal was like, or someone who... Oh. Tell me about those. So what were, some of the, what were some of the caricatures that you grew up with, and how were you surprised when you actually got out and began to meet these people? Yeah, the thing you, you would you hear of is they're cohabitating early, so they're all living in sin, and, and they're all selfish, and, and they don't want to have children because, because, the, because they're bad people. 
and they care more about their image than they you know do about how they're treating others. And oh, what's a caricature is judging them for behaving differently than how you would in Nebraska or like having a little bit different life pattern and just saying that's because you're sinful or because you're wrong. Now I'm in New York and I lived with my fiance before we were engaged and, and that was economically driven. If I if I'm in Brainerd to shack up with someone, I'm probably saving like a hundred dollars a month in rent. But in New York City our our rent's over two thousand dollars. So when you shack up with someone, you're saving a lot of money. I think those economic realities of living in the city and how it influences people's behaviors drives people to overlook why they're behaving the way they are. When I was in Nebraska, I would say someone in my position right now is living in sin and a selfish person. But now I would look back and tell my old self in Brainerd, dude, you don't know what it's like to live in a place where it costs $2,000 a month for rent. Like you, you have to change your behavior if you want to have a sustainable life out here. And I think those are the things we miss from being in, in cheap areas where land is easy to get and doesn't cost much to living in a dense area where everything's expensive and you're surrounded by a ton of people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Ross Benish. We're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. I want to stick with what you're saying, because this brings out something that I guess I knew intellectually, but really struck me when I read it in your book, Rural Rebellion. Growing up in Brainerd, it wasn't simply that other people knew your business, but People knew intimate details of your life, your livelihood, your circumstances. And so one of the distinctions that I think you're bringing out in your answer to my question when we were talking about kind of your experience of living there in New York and why you would choose to cohabitate in New York rather than living in separate apartments, even though in Brainerd that might look like living in sin, is that the details financially are... One thing is that the details financially is that it just makes more economic sense for the two of you to live together. But the other thing is that you're living in a city of 12 million people and nobody's going to look at you and think twice about what you're doing. If I understand correctly, your experience in Brainerd, that is exactly what people would do. They would look at you and they'd say, oh, yeah, my mom would be the first one. (laughs) (laughs) But so help my help my listeners understand that distinction. What was it like to grow up where people knew that much about your daily goings on? Yeah, I was unfamiliar with anonymity is how I would put it. I mean, they they knew everything. Sometimes before you even knew it, your whole family's history too, not just you. They would know who your uncle dated in high school and what you maybe plan to major on when you finally go to college. There are good things about that. It makes people treat each other kinder when they're in person because they probably have to deal with that person again. I think part of the reason in New York City people can be quite nasty is because if I'm really mean to someone on the street or they're mean to me, they probably won't have to deal with me. So there isn't like a big cost to them being rude. But if like I'm rude to someone in Brainerd, I'm probably going to see them like two days later in the same place and it's just going to be awkward. So you have to get along with people a lot better. Now, in Brainerd, I would say the downsides of that, you have the plus side, people are treating each other nicely. The downside is, People still have opinions about others that are not good or that aren't polite. And just because they don't express them publicly doesn't mean they don't express them at all. So gossip can be pretty terrible in a small town. And people are gossiping about you, even if they don't say it to you, because it's really hard to keep it secret out there. 
in New York City, sure, I might not have to interact with that person. We may not be as polite to each other, but if something goes bad or I have an opinion about that guy, I can really tell him and not have to worry about it and get it out right away. So th- those would probably be the pros and cons of what I see being in a very small population area to a very dense area. Well, now let me let me ask this in a kind of more particular way. So here in Chicago, it's the third largest city in the United States. And I am I'm a Catholic. You've mentioned that you grew up Catholic. I have a relationship with the priest at my parish, but I would say that probably other than what I reveal in confession, the priest in my parish really doesn't know much about my life, my circumstances, or my business. What I'm hearing you saying about growing up in Nebraska is that everybody knew everybody's business. And you mentioned that the church was a very big part of your social life. Was it your experience as well that the clergy had an intimacy of knowledge about the goings-on of the people in their parishes that maybe someone who lives in a larger city just doesn't understand? The clergy definitely had that knowledge. And a lot of times the clergy would be involved with the school. I went to public school, but there was a Catholic school 12 miles from us where basically over half of the teachers were diocesan priests. So that gave them an even further connection to the community. And because you get to know the priests, I I became friends with the priests. We would go out and do things as like a group. There was more, how should I put this? The priest didn't just know us from mass. We had a priest who ran cross country and track with the high school team, even though he wasn't affiliated with the school. There were just opportunities like that where the priest could just jump into a community activity. Everyone already knew the priest. The priests often were friends with everyone in town because everyone eventually knows everyone anyways. And you're, of course, going to know the person leading your congregation. So everyone knows everything about the priest too, which probably is a challenge for clergy in that area. You know, they have to deal with some of these same forces, if there's whispers in the diocese or in the parish, you know, it's a lot harder to be anonymous, especially challenging when you consider that the church has often tried to squash any information that people try to find out about it. This is, I think, another thing that I want to make sure is clear to my listeners. If they come to your book, Rural Rebellion, they're going to get this kind of 30-year scope of time that you're talking about. During that 30-year scope of time, this was the rise of the reporting from the Boston Globe and other places about many of the scandals in the Catholic Church, the sexual abuse crisis that hit many dioceses in the Catholic Church. One of the things that you say loud and clear in your book, Rural Rebellion, is that even though you're aware that happened, your experience of these relationships with these priests was not that. It wasn't scandal-ridden, but instead it was very much above board, and you saw these people to be in some ways model members of the community. Now, those are my words, not yours. No, I agree with that. I loved the the priests and nuns who I met in my life. I think there's an assumption, you know, I've lost a lot of touch with my faith. We're still getting married in the Catholic Church next year, but I'm definitely um, not nearly as Catholic or, or religious as I used to be, and I have a lot of issues with it. And when that's come out to people who are very ardent believers, they will often start talking to me, what did this priest do to you? Or what did they They just assume I was wrong by someone within the church, whether it was clergy or someone who's very involved. They say, what happened? And I I have to tell them that's not the case with everyone. There certainly are people who were abused or had a bad experience from someone else within the church and that drove them to leave. But I left despite all that. I I tried to hang on so much longer because of the phenomenal relationships I had with 
priests and nuns. And they were my friends. They weren't just leaders of the congregation. I, I went on trips to other states, like to St. Louis or to La Crosse, Wisconsin, to go to church events. And I would accompany some seminarians or a priest. And I, and I love those trips. And I think they're great people, but I just don't have their viewpoint on many things like I used to. And I, I think that gets lost, that you can still feel an attachment and a sympathy for people who lead an organization that you no longer believe in as much. So in your book, Rural Rebellion, you've laid out for us how these priests were involved in the life and other vowed religious were involved in the life of the community that you grew up in, and you found those relationships to be very fruitful. But I also want the listener to understand that the community that you described there in Brainerd wasn't a theocracy. And here's what I mean by that. Life still happened. There were still out of wedlock pregnancies. There were still those kinds of things happening. People were still involved in the same things and the same kind of slips and the same situations that people who grew up in larger cities were involved in. And those intrusions of reality helped in some ways, if I'm reading you correctly, to shape and reshape your approach to Catholic faith. Now, when I say it that way, have I got it right or would you say it a different way? I, I would agree with that. And you're making me think of the birth of my niece. So my, my brother was in high school when he knocked up his girlfriend and they w went over all the options. What could you do? And they decided to try to raise the kid themselves. And it, it would have been convenient for them to have an abortion. They were both high school aged, but they didn't. And it was a very big challenge for them to raise this person, especially because they ended up splitting up and finding different partners and having children with other people. While they were young, they didn't have much money. They were trying to build careers, but they stuck with it. And now my niece is very successful. She's a, an amazing member of our family. And our lives would be so much worse if she wasn't born. And that's the type of experience that drives you to be more pro-life. So for those of you that have just joined us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Ross Benish, and we're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these kinds of conversations, all available online for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're talking to Ross Benish. We're talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Now, I want to ask you now about the, this word in the title of your book, Rebellion. You describe what happened as Nebraska went to become a Republican stronghold. You describe it as a rebellion. I'm interested why you chose that word. Because the 
shift away from Democrats was so hard and so drastic in rural areas. And they uh, dislike Democrats so much that they have stuck with the GOP, even as it has changed its position on you know, several policies and embrace more bombastic leaders. So I, I see that as like a real rise up against the Democratic Party. And, and Butler County, where I'm from, since 2000, their share of voters who are Democrats dropped by about 50%. So to me, that's a rebellion against the party. And we've talked about what the Republicans have done with regard to culture war issues. We've talked about how the church has played a role in this. But what I was fascinated to discover in your book, Rural Rebellion, and I realized that I've read about this in other places as well, but I didn't realize that it that it went into the, the heart of the heartland as much as it did, was the role that the Democratic Party played in that turning away and the souring of the relationship with the Democrats. And I'd love for my listeners to hear a little bit more about some of the ways that the Democratic Party itself contributed to the loss of Democratic strongholds in places like rural Nebraska? The Democrats who won in Nebraska when I was a kid were able to deviate from their party and form their own platform, and that helped them to gain conservative voters. And the the biggest issue was on abortion. They didn't have to be so dogmatically against abortion. Like Ben Nelson was our last Democratic U.S. senator. He was pro-life on most of his votes, and that's part of the reason why he got elected. You can't really do that today and be a Democrat. They're, they're pro-life Democrats. That's a, it's an oxymoron right now. And on the other side, too, Republicans used to have pro-choice Republicans, and those are much less rare. But that's an example of almost falling asleep at the switch and requiring orthodoxy in a way that goes against your own interests. People on the coast often like to point at those in states like Kansas and Nebraska and say, you're voting against your own interests. I would say the Democratic Party chose positions that were against its own interests in some of those areas. And one of the things that you mentioned is that there was, a, I think it was a mayoral race in Nebraska that ended up becoming a national ignition point. And even Tom Perez, who at the time was the head of the Democratic Party, got involved in this mayoral race. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this was 2017, I believe. Nebraska had a mayor race in Omaha. The Democratic candidate was Heath Mello, and things were going fine. He was campaigning on issues like fixing potholes, like things that mayors can actually control. And uh, they brought Bernie Sanders in town to energize the base. And then all this attention came to Bernie Sanders is coming to Omaha. And the Wall Street Journal had a story that was about how the Democrats are mixed on their reproductive rights support because Heath Mello is actually really pro-life and that goes against the party. And then all these activists from Washington, D.C. piled on Mello and the Nebraska Democratic Party and more news outlets wrote about it. And it became this like snowball of coverage just because this guy happened to be more pro-life than most Democrats are. And it's weird to Think about why does uh, an activist in Washington, D.C. or a media person in New York really care what someone in Omaha, Nebraska is doing when they haven't even been there? But that drove a negative news cycle that helped tank his campaign. And and the sad part of it was he was more pro-life than most Democrats, but he was also pretty moderate on the issue. And the issue at hand was that he sponsored an ultrasound bill and the Democrats nationally were really mad at him. But It was his lobbying that made the ultrasound bill, he made it an option 
for a woman to have to have an ultrasound. Or he made it optional for a woman to hear this information about where to have an ultrasound before she'd have an abortion instead of mandatory. The Republicans actually wanted it to be mandatory. So uh, Mello helped soften the edges on that to make it more favorable for Democrats. And he was crucified for doing so because he wasn't as pro-choice as the national Democrats wanted him to be. So you have this silly situation where a technically nonpartisan race in a mid-sized city in the middle of the country becomes this proxy war for the future of the Democratic Party and how much people have to adhere to the National Party's platform. And the Democrats shot themselves in the foot. Tom Perez was the chairman and he denounced Mello by name. What kind of message does that send to people who want to run in those areas when they, they try to deviate and the party slams them? It's applying a national standard to a place where the national standard doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is actually something that you bring out in the book that really hit me right between the eyes was when Perez said, it is the the platform of the Democratic Party that we are pro-choice, and that is an absolute that applies no matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a big city, a small town, anywhere. That is the position. And what struck me about that is that it's doing exactly what we started the conversation talking about, the complete elimination of nuance, the complete elimination of the particularities that obtain in various places like rural Nebraska that may be different. You campaign in rural Nebraska differently than you do in metropolitan New York. Well, I sure hope you would. One would think that you would, (laughs) but this broad brush approach that someone like Tom Perez insisted on, it really made it, it didn't just make it difficult. What I'm hearing you saying is it made it impossible for Democrats not only to campaign, but even to exist as a political entity in places like rural Nebraska. Have I heard that correctly? I I would say impossible is going a little too far, but those types of statements definitely hurt more than they help. And when you think about how silly it all is, how much power does a mayor really have in determining reproductive laws. This isn't a Supreme Court justice we're talking about. It's, it's a mayor of one city. We treat these wedge issues with such absolutes. How far down the line are we going to go? Are you going to elect a sheriff based on if they're pro-life or pro-choice? It, it, it's just silly. It doesn't even apply to the jobs that they get mad about. And what I also heard you say was that it was the presence of someone like Mello in some of these more fractious discussions that actually allowed forward motion, that he was actually able to help to broker a compromise that a more trenchant, a more stalwart position wouldn't have allowed. Did I hear that correctly? Yep. Nope, that's correct. That the position that he helped negotiate was more favorable to everyone, basically, except for those under the very far right. I think what's also tragic about it is that he also supported LGBT protections. He was endorsed by unions. He embraced healthcare expansion. These are things that you think Democrats would care a lot about, but DNC denounced him for not being as pro-choice as people in Washington, D.C. would like him to be. So as you were reporting for this book and pulling this together, I realized that your focus was there on Brainerd and those areas around Brainerd. Did you get any sense that the Democratic Party as a whole recognizes this as a lost opportunity or that in any way they've learned from this and that they now want to go back and have more nuance? Or does it seem to you that they're doubling down and doubling down? It seems to me like they're doubling down. They'll say that they want more nuance. They're definitely putting effort in to fix this 30-year problem. I I don't want to act like they're not trying or anything, but 
then again, the last time they updated their party platform, they moved it further to the left on gun rights and on abortion. And I don't see that being a winning issue statewide in Nebraska. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Ross Benish. He's talking to us today about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Now I want to ask you about another word in your title, stronghold. I, I, I guess I want you to help me and my listeners to begin to see a little bit of the future. Is Nebraska forever lost to the Democrats? You corrected me earlier when I talked about impossibility, and so my bet is probably you won't want to go as firmly into saying that it's a lost cause. Oh yeah, well, impossible. But, we'll be here for a long time. But stronghold still uh, stronghold still has a, a resonance to it that makes it seem like there's a fortress aspect there, that it's going to be hard for progressives to regain ground. And so is that the takeaway that you are wanting readers and listeners to have about your analysis, or would you cast your analysis in a different light? Yeah, our future isn't set in stone right now. There's been all sorts of political shifts in our state's history and our nation's history that people didn't forecast. I don't want to give you the impression that in 2300, things are going to be exactly the same way they are now, and Republicans are going to dominate Nebraska just like they've always dominated. But the reason I said stronghold is just because right now, at this moment, their grip on power is so firm. The Republicans really don't have to appeal to anyone outside of Republican primary voters because the Republican who wins the primary easily wins like every general election. And so you just appeal to the far right voters in the primary. And until that changes, we're going to you know, get the types of leaders who we've elected recently. And to give you a sense of how much of a stronghold it is, in the last three U.S. Senate races in Nebraska, the Republicans have won by about 30 percentage points. And some of the House races have been complete blowouts, too. There's only one com- district that's really competitive when it comes to House seats. And our governor, very far right, and the next governor will be a Republican, too. I'm very sure of that. But I don't think we have to view this current moment in time as the thing that's going to determine our whole future. Democrats can start to turn some of these things around. I think one place, two places they could pick up momentum is if they were able to win the Omaha mayor race coming up later this year. And if they were able to win the second congressional district, which is the Omaha area the following year, if they can get some wins and build up some hope that will inspire more candidates to learn. It'll also inspire more people to make donations. What's really tough right now for Democrats in the state is, you know, so much of this can become self-fulfilling. People don't run because they don't think they can win. People won't donate because they think that the Democrats don't have a a chance of winning and they want to give their money to a winner because they want to be able to lobby the winner. But if they can start to pick up some momentum, and those are two races that I think would be winnable for them, they could slowly start to peel away from all these seats that they've lost in Nebraska over the last 30 years. This is a long-term problem, and it's going to take a long-term fix. What I'm hearing in your answer is that part of the solution to this problem for the Democrats is exactly the kind of intimacy 
that we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Actually being on the ground, having relationships with people, getting to know the real lived life and struggles of people, that's going to be part of what the the Democratic Party, if they want to begin to win places like Nebraska or even in cities like Omaha, that they're going to need to start being willing to do. They can't necessarily reach in from several states away with a unilateral command like Tom Perez did and simply expect that's going to fly. It, it sounds like it's going to be a need to be a much more on the ground effort. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I would say that's correct. And I think they're making a better effort now than they were four or five years ago. But there's a lot of inertia for them to overcome. I mean, they, they lost a lot in Nebraska in the 90s and in the early 2000s during those culture wars and during some of the other things that we've already talked about. Let me say, as a reader of your book, one of the ways in which your writing has already affected me. So we're recording this a couple of days after the insurrection at the Capitol. And one of the things that has been happening is we, my, my wife and I have been listening intently to NPR. And this morning on NPR, we heard one of your representatives, Ben Sass, speaking in an interview on NPR. And I listened to him and I realized that he was choosing to stand against Trumpism, even though he's a Republican. He was choosing to stand and call for some accountability for what happened in the Capitol, even though he's a Republican. And one of the benefits of a book like yours, Rural Rebellion, is that it really helped me to be able to slow down and get past my own blinders and to be able to hear that even though I think I would disagree with this particular politician on a lot of positions, I found myself able to say, but in this particular moment, he's talking sense, and I really appreciate that he's willing to do that. To me, that was my kind of Nebraska breakthrough moment, where I was doing what you were calling for readers to do in your book. Now, when I say that to you, have I got it right? Am I the audience for this book? Am I getting the message that you want, or is there a different message that you would like your readers to get? Well, that's a, that sounds like a good message to me. I, I didn't expect Ben Sass to be my breakthrough moment, but <laughs> that's what happens. So I'm cool with it. Well, and, and let me say that what I got from your book was that when I look at someone who is uh, a politician coming from Nebraska, I think prior to reading your book, I would have had some stereotypes. And one of the things that you did so well in your book was that you continued to remind the reader that these stereotypes are not useful and they're not accurate. And that when we're looking at these kinds of conversations, it, it does us better to lean into the nuance than to lean into the caricature. Now, this is how I have benefited from reading your book, but I, I now, as we're moving towards the end of the conversation, want to flip that question around. How have you changed in the process of writing this book? What surprised you, and what are you coming away from this project seeing differently than when you went into it? What I came away with was how much my own history is intertwined with my home state. I haven't lived there for a little over six years, but when I think about all my formative experiences as I was, I was writing the book, I actually wanted to include more about my time in New York, but I've had way more, you know, <laughs> memorable and formative experiences in Nebraska than I did in New York. So it, it still forms me in many ways. And I, I also came away with how much I'm formed by my faith, even though I don't attend church anymore or believe in many of the tenets I used to believe, my outlook on life 
in, in many areas, whether it's financial or how I try to treat others or how I pr- approach intellectual topics is very much guided by my Catholicism. And I kind of knew that, but when you have to write about how you lost your faith, you know, realize how much it still actually affects you. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you're planning to get married within the next year and planning to buy land and, and raise a family and that these are the things that you're aspiring to. Let me ask you then, what role will things like faith and your hometown play in those relationships? As you begin to show your children about the world, what do you imagine that you'll be passing on to them from this formative experience that you had in rural Nebraska? Yeah, you know, me and my fiance have been debating this constantly as we plan the wedding. How are we going to raise the kids in the church, not in the church? If they do go to church, how often, how seriously? It, it'll definitely have a role. And part of that, I'm, I'm marrying a Catholic woman who comes from a, a Catholic family. If I wasn't, I probably would be apt to give it up with, with the kids, but it'll definitely have a role. I, I don't know if it'll have as intensive a role as it had in my life, but I would like them to be introduced to it and, and to some of the ways of thinking that I was exposed to in the church. Now, as far as how Brainerd would influence that's something <laughs> I, it's tar- hard to talk about because I don't have a, a kid yet, but I definitely want to take them back there as often as I can to give them an appreciation of how vast and different the U.S. can be. Because if we're living in metropolitan New York, that's you know <laughs> so different from the place I grew up with. But I want them to have a familiarity with it so that they could also better understand me and some of my you know, outlooks on life and why I'm such an old man. Well, Ross Benish, I have to say, as a reader of your book, Rural Rebellion, it really gave me a glimpse of how vast and diverse America can be. I gained a lot of knowledge from this book, and really not simply politically, but also in terms of just my understanding of the culture and my own blinders living in a major Midwestern city and having grown up around major cities throughout my life. I am deeply grateful that you took the time to write this book. I hope that my listeners will go out and get your book, Rural Rebellion, but I'm especially grateful that you took the time today to speak to us about it. That was very kind of you to say, and I've loved having this conversation today. We've been speaking today with Ross Benish. He's the author of several books, and he works in various realms of media, having written for publications and helping others to navigate the media landscape. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.